0: From the dark web to your radio dial, you are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 W-O-A-I. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. We're joined this week uh, by a couple of cyber experts, and we're going to dive into a handful of topics, including threat intelligence, like is it really good information, or are you just buying a bunch of garbage? If you don't know what threat intelligence is, you may be able to learn by tuning in here and listening for... A few minutes through our first segment. Uh, We'll dive into uh, other topics about uh, IT and IT security. Uh, Do they play well together or is uh, there more behind the scenes there uh, than a non technology manager may know? Uh, So, uh, joined this week by Nicholas Hollis, the CEO of Coherent Cyber, and uh, also by Jacob Stauffer, the VP of Operations there, who really gets in and does. A lot of the uh, deep technical hands-on work. Thank you, gentlemen, for uh, joining us this week.
1: Yeah, Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, thanks. So uh, how did you uh, just uh, end up in cybersecurity to start with? Uh, Where did you uh, work through your career to get to this point?
1: I'll kick that off. So um, having lived in San Antonio for a number of years, um, I'm actually come from the business side and I recognized they did two things very well here. One was healthcare and the other one was cybersecurity. So in the late 90s, I started looking around for investments in the cybersecurity world and came across a company here called Secure Info Corporation, which has since been sold and is based out in DC, um, but got involved on the investment side and in running that particular business with the technical people uh, and expanding um, that business from the uh, military into the federal world. Um, And our goal at that time was to move into the commercial world, but that was ultimately the reason that I got out of the cybersecurity business, which was about in 2005, was just the inability to convince corporations that what was happening in the military and then ultimately what was happening in the federal government needed to happen in industry. and we would get a lot of pushback. Um, you know, a lot of the things we're most probably going to talk about today, we was talking about then. Cybersecurity hasn't really changed. The threats have changed, and what the, and the vectors have changed. But the need to you know to defend your network in depth, the, the fact that you need to be educating people, you need to have a cohesive relationship between your cybersecurity people and your IT team, that hasn't changed. Um, and the reason for getting back into the business is 10 years later, everybody, it's on the front page. That what we were trying to convince people of 10 years ago that, that they thought that if they bought their firewall and their IDS and they had lots of flashing lights, they were safe, and clearly they would not, as we can see what's happened with the, with all of the technology that's been exfiltrated out of the United States.
0: So. Yeah, that, that uh, new Chinese fighter jet looks a lot like an F-35. <laughs> Just a tad,
1: yeah, Just, and a lot of, and then you, you know, the new airline or little single aisle airline looks very much like a Boeing. So, all of these things were, as I said, a level of frustration got out. But now, as I said, the the commercial reality is that people understand that um, with everything on the network, entire values of businesses um, are defined by the their ability to be able to operate. If you, you know, if you unplug the network, no corporation in America could function. So the fact that you would not protect that in the same way you would protect the front door of your house or the keys and that unlock your car they're getting it uh, and now it's a reason to be back in the business
0: yeah so jacob how about you
2: get getting into cybersecurity um, so it, it's it's kind of interesting um, how i started out i actually got a uh, an engineering degree and um, uh, after college i was uh, i felt like i had a uh, kind of a missing spot uh, as far as a uh, career is concerned so uh, I got involved in an organization called um, uh, CyberCorp and um, they paid for my master's degree at the University of Tulsa um, and uh, our focus was computer science but with security and with forensics and uh, uh, shortly then after I did a bunch of internships and then um, um, as per my uh, agreement with CyberCorp I had to do two years uh, at least in the, the federal uh, government or federal sector and so um, i went to go work for the air force uh, did about seven years as a civil service uh, employee and uh, ran the the computer uh, the air force computer emergency response team's forensics uh, lab for about five years um, and then in 2014 uh, uh, got involved in a small little organization called InfoSight and uh, uh, started helping them with their uh, capabilities uh, doing some of the cyber services side for them and then um, nick and i met in. What was it 2016? 16. And um, we started a small little company called Coherent Cyber and just do consultant services and uh, uh, all the services side for the side team. Cool. So you guys are uh,
0: headquartered here in San Antonio, and you were saying, uh, Nick, there's just a lot of cybersecurity uh, talent and uh, activity going on here for uh, those listeners that uh, this may be your first time on the program. Uh, San Antonio's kind of coined itself as Cyber City USA. If you look at a metro area, there's the cyber talent in San Antonio, and then in the Washington D.C. metro, and uh, everywhere else is kind of a distant third after that. With the the cyber piece, uh, so you said you spent some time uh, working with the Air Force. Was that here with the
2: what's now the 24th and 25th, or were you uh, located elsewhere? So I was here. Um, I was under the 24th Air Force at the time. Um, And then actually I was there before 24th Air Force was stood up. And then uh, 24th and then 25th were eventually stood up, and I was under the 24th side.
0: Yeah. And so you talked about uh, cyber forensics. Uh, And so I think folks are familiar with forensics. CSI has been on TV now for a a decade, and I think that's helped people understand uh, this forensic investigation and science investigation stuff a little bit more. Mainstream TV can be helpful people, Uh, just maybe not some of the sitcoms out there unless you just would like to have a laugh. Uh, So cyber forensics from physical forensics, uh, can you help us understand uh, are there differences and how do you run a cyber forensic investigation?
2: Well, so first and foremost, I want to tell everybody that everything you see on uh, NCIS or uh, CSI is absolutely not how it works in the real world. Um, so you don't have the, the the flashy lights or the minority report type of thing where you're throwing uh, things all over the place but um, so as, as far as the the cyber forensic side is concerned the difference between the two is um, uh, the digital frontier is a man-made uh, frontier um, uh, when you look at the uh, the physical side to it blood spatter uh, patterns or uh, a gunshot residue or whatnot um, they're based on uh, the physical realities, um, uh, physics and whatnot. Uh, and so the sciences are, um, are relatively proven, and um, they've, been, they've been out there for a while, where the digital forensic side is, uh, is still emerging. Um, uh, every day a new operating system comes out. Every day a new vector of attack comes out. And so these guys consistently have to be um, uh, on top of their game, uh, knowing what the, uh, the attackers are doing, how they're doing it. Um, and then applying that to um, the, the digital frontier.
0: Yeah, so this would be kind of the equivalent if, if the physical criminals came out with a new gun and a new bullet type every day that changed the way blood spatter patterns worked and you were trying to track down what kind of firearm this was based off the blood spatter, you'd be constantly testing, constantly researching, constantly trying to figure out what did they, they change on the physical side to change how the gun works to create that pattern you have this constant evolution in the digital world.
2: Well, and the other thing you have to think about is, like let's say for instance, um, uh, you were in a crime scene investigator coming up and you see this huge hole in the wall and you didn't know that it was made by a railgun. Well, what does it take to make a rail gun? You're talking about um, research and development, probably in the billions of dollars. Um, you're looking at a bunch of individuals that are developing that technology what uh, whatnot. So the, the lead time to actually deploying that, that technology takes a long time, where in the digital uh, world, um, those bullets are a lot easier to create. It takes a lot less time to create them. And so one of the things that we consistently tell, or at least uh, when I uh, brief some of this stuff to my kids, uh, I do Cyber Patriot and and whatnot, um, that the cost of war when it comes to like building the next generation warfighter versus building next generation cyber warfighter is significantly different.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, you talk missiles and things in the price of a million dollars or more each and those are disposable effectively rounds, you get to use them once and a million dollars in the cyber world and you can generate a lot of software that you get to keep reusing over and over and that you can get branch and modify it a little bit and turn it into something new. Um, so once you've built up that base foundation, it's easy to continue to generate effectively new munitions. In the, the cyber forensic uh, side of the investigation, so it, it sounds like in order to be able to do that, you've got to be able to tie this into uh, some of the stuff we were talking about before we came on the air around threat intelligence. Uh, and you've got to know some of the patterns and, and behaviors and roots of where did certain types of technology come from in order to be able to do a, a forensic investigation.
2: Um, not necessarily so uh, typically what will end up happening so when we um, uh, ran a typical investigation for the the AFSERT either we would see something come across our network and we would say hey that's a little weird let's go do some investigation and we find uh, during our investigation that there was a a breach or whatnot Um, and then in other cases we would actually get uh, Intel reports from other organizations like the Navy like the army or whatnot um, that said hey we got hit by this Mm -hmm. Uh, this was our investigation, this is our uh, indicators of compromise. If you see this, then uh, start doing that. So, so the intelligence community, um, they have to have a vested interest in, in each other, not only a, a give-and-take type of relationship, um, um, but there also has to be some validity to it. And one of the things you're going to see, especially in the commercial world right now, is um, there are some companies that have some uh, some good threat intel, and there's some companies that are selling snake oil and you just have to be able to figure out which ones which ones are which yeah is
0: there if i'm interviewing uh a company to prospectively hire them and and to get subscribed to their threat intelligence service are there some questions that yeah you would ask if you were screening them
2: well i mean so first and foremost ask them where they're getting their intelligence i mean if they tell them well we can't tell you then, then then move on um it, it, that works for the government because they have uh, a various um, uh, various sources various places where they get their intelligence and that's that's obviously uh, need-to-know basis but when the, the commercial side is concerned uh, if they're receiving their their information from other clients that they have out there then they're um, uh, aggregating all that information they're doing their own analysis and they're giving it to the um, uh, their customers as well um, uh, that's uh, that's kind of the right way of, uh, of doing things in, in this case. Um, but the the other thing is, is that ask them how big their research team is. Um, do they have malware analysts uh, on site that are actually pulling this stuff together, doing reverse engineering and whatnot? Um, and um, and don't be afraid to ask, hey, can I take a look at your, your facilities or, or uh, uh, do your own research? Uh, the, the, the nice thing or the most interesting thing about uh, today's market is that um, – everybody's website looks really, really, really cool. Um, and, and there's frameworks out there to make your website look really cool. But do your own research and figure out how big is the, the company really? What's their uh, intake? What's their uh, output? And um, one of the other things that we also do is uh, there are independent labs out there that will uh, validate some of these organizations um, as far as their, their intelligence, whether or not they're selling snake oil or if they're, uh, if they're the real deal. Um, and, and pay attention to some of those organizations. So it's uh, almost in just in the regular news landscape.
0: We have folks doing real investigative journalism and reporting. We have um, folks that are repackaging that and streaming it out that aren't really doing the original work themselves. And then we have folks that are creating fake news. So it sounds like threat intelligence we get all three of those uh, out there as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's
0: a, a good walkthrough. Uh, if you've just joined us, we're you're listening to 1200 WAI. Uh, we're uh, talking about cybersecurity here on CyberTalk Radio. Um, we've covered uh, some threat intelligence and cyber forensics to open up the program. I'm joined this week uh, by Nicholas Hollis and uh, Jacob Stauffer from Coherent Cyber. Uh, we're going to talk some more uh, about threat landscapes, um, defense in depth, and really uh, what should you be doing to keep your business safe. Um, If you want to listen on uh, the internet uh, afterwards, if you're not going to be in your car or on the radio uh, for the remainder of the uh, hour here with us, uh, you can follow us on iTunes, Podcast, uh, Pocket Cast, or YouTube. Uh, This program will air on Tuesday. Uh, We also have a whole back catalog of uh, previous episodes where we've talked about things like a drop test and uh, Nick, we were talking about that a little bit off the air as well. Uh, He was saying that uh, it seems like at some conferences or events uh, up to 80% of the folks will go plug these things into their computer still. Uh, For those uh, here on the radio, walk them through what is a a kind of a drop test and, and what's this thing that you probably should not do?
1: Well, one of the big challenges is that people can write malware and just stick them on the little uh, USB sticks. Um, you can get one for a dollar. So you get 50 or 60 of those and you're at a conference and you just drop them outside of everybody's door. And all the experience says that even, even professionals, 60 or 70 percent of them will pick them up and stick them in their computers to figure out what's on it. Which is fabulous. Okay, so now for the for the investment of fifty or sixty dollars, you've now got fifty new computers for your botnet. Um, but more than that, you know, think of it in terms of people bringing things into the organization. You know, all computers, if you look on the side, they've all got USB ports. It's all very usable. Well, that's possibly one of the most dangerous things you can do: is provide un uneducated users in your organization with the ability to plug software into your, your beautifully designed defense network um, and then not have the ability to understand where these attacks come from. So either people are bringing it in intentionally to cause trouble or they're bringing it in unintentionally and the real challenge there is you know you asked about all the things that you need to do one of the biggest things is you need to really understand um, training of your employees. Sitting down and having a conversation with them about things that they should be doing, they shouldn't be. Not telling them don't do things. Telling them why doing certain things is a really dumb idea. Yeah. You know, t- picking up a USB at a conference and then plugging it into your office network, and all of a sudden, you're out of business for three days. That's dumb. Yeah. Um, and you know, just people, the phishing. Phishing is still one of the most effective ways of, of picking up, the, of, of infecting networks explaining to employees, don't open that picture, don't, you know, don't do these things, don't use your laptop outside the organization at a Starbucks uh, on, without using the VPN and then bringing that, that malware and things back into the network. So social engineering of the employees is really, I think, one of the, one of the easiest ways for, for people to come in, because then you don't have to attack the, the real defenses, you can attack the weak parts of the organization.
0: Yeah, because on the, the technology side of this, it's a, an arms race. So you have these USB storage devices uh, that are people are plugging into their computers and malware is getting loaded on. So then the IT security team puts some software on the computer to disable USB storage devices. So now you can't plug a USB storage device in. So now the attacker builds a little thing that looks like a USB storage device, but it's actually a USB keyboard. And then the IT security guy's like, I can't disable USB keyboards being able to be plugged in because then the person can't use the computer and type. So you, and that little stick that can look like a storage device will auto-key and go out there and it will go log on and it will download malware off the internet. So you're not putting a a storage device on there anymore, but it's going to go get the malware and and bring it onto the computer and you have to allow a USB keyboard uh, to be plugged in. Same thing with that, that keyboard can go in and and even just do key logging and then email your keystrokes back out to somebody else and it's uh, pretty hard to block uh, again a device from being able to um, send basic packets out to the internet because it's um, if you're sending an HTTPS connection from a, the computer it's difficult for the security systems um, unless they're gonna set up a real strong man in the middle that handles all of the SSL um, communication to be able to differentiate and see what's going on there so uh, these lots of little physical attacks that the attackers will keep doing to circumvent every technology piece and this is where that training uh, comes in uh, to eliminate and minimize the the chance that some of these risks are gonna uh, go out there and get exposed.
1: You know the other thing that you're also highlighting at this point is that once the attack is occurring from the inside it's very difficult at that point to understand it, Um, because typically the methodology has been hardening the outside of these organizations, stopping threats coming in over the transom. Once a threat comes in from the inside and you're infected, you've got very few tools that are are beginning to to look at those things. That's what attracted me to the InfoSight technology and wanted me to get involved again. Where Basically, you take the premise that you are already defeated, that you're already hacked. Yeah, and then what you are doing is you're going out and looking for threats in your own organization. Um, I think the analogy is you know people are spending a tremendous amount of money doing penetration testing, which is you know, effectively seeing whether the you have got a front door open or a window open or a broken window on the second floor. When in reality, um, that may be may all look secure, but it wasn't secure 15 minutes ago we're looking for the person who's hiding under the bed and eating out of your refrigerator. And that has been a missing piece. Um, and, And I think Jake can talk more fully about this, but that's a methodology that began in the Air Force a few years ago, the concept of threat hunting, where no matter how tall you build the wall or how deep you put the foundation into the ground, these people will find a way around it. So don't spend 10 times as much on the wall and not spend any money on figuring out that somebody's already defeated you. So we're seeing budgets beginning to evolve towards this concept of threat hunting. And I'll turn it over to Jake. He's the expert. Yeah, and
0: and so we had uh, Chris Garrett from InfoSight on the program. If you wanted to listen uh, in depth on threat hunting, malware hunting, uh, look us up on iTunes or YouTube and check that stuff out. uh, One of the things that Chris brought up, uh, Jake, is that on average folks are inside for 180 days before like they go out you do the threat hunting and then they find the attacker's been in there for six months
2: correct yeah and and typically that's after a forensic investigation where somebody has spent a lot of time and a lot of effort to to go through hard drives to go through other other systems and go through logs and find out that hey you have been in fact been compromised for two years, and I mean it is not uncommon for a, a, an organization to be compromised for a significant
1: period of time. So, yeah, All the big loud attacks have gone away, you know, people, you know, occasionally someone will pull off a DOS for some reason, they're annoyed at somebody or whatever, or they're proving a point, but the real money that's being taken out today has all been done low and slow. People are coming in, they don't want to be seen, they're hiding themselves in the networks, and they're exfiltrating data, they're exfiltrating the things that they need. And, you know, it used to be just credit card numbers. Now they're selling, they're selling health records. They're selling all sorts of things out there yeah. on the Internet. So.
2: And, and to Nick's point, earlier when you were talking about um, the the hard candy shell as far as the, the network is concerned and in this gooey center, um, it, that was one of the things that we ran into in the Air Force was that we needed to have a paradigm shift between our traditional way of hardening the border but really not having ins- anything inside to actually taking a look at where the interactions are happening. It's not happening on the routers. It's not happening on the switches. The people that are right in front of the workstations are the threat, and you need to be able to get right down into the nitty-gritty and figure out what's going on in that environment, and that's what what, what InfoSight and Chris has, uh, has pioneered in.
0: Yeah so, as you're doing a cyber forensic investigation, you're you're out there going through, and you found that these actors, how often uh, do you have gaps in the log collection and the ability to actually trace things back? If you're talking two years, do most businesses have records that go back that far?
2: Um, no. To, to be honest with you, a lot of the uh, a lot of the organizations that we run into right now don't have centralized logging. They don't have. Um, uh, all of their logs have rolled over um, give an example one of our uh, our previous clients we get into their, uh, uh, their router and come to find out that their logs rotate every um, 24 hours or I think it was like 100 megabytes and so I mean you have nothing to go on so what you have to do literally is use a tool like InfoSight to come in um, do a quick analysis of the network make sure that there is no um, um, other malware um, that, that's being uh, essentially laterally moved across um, and um, and give the, the CEO uh, a warm fuzzy that, hey, your, your network is not continuing to be compromised, your data is not being exfilled, and um, and you just go from there.
0: Yeah. So we're about to uh, break uh, for a bottom of an hour news traffic and weather update. Uh, when we come back after the bottom of the hour, we may uh, dive in a little bit more in the security landscape for a small business up through enterprise and then Maybe if uh, you would like uh, Jake or another uh, cyber forensic investigator to be successful when they come out and uh, have to do an investigation for you. And if you haven't had one yet, you may just not know that you're already compromised. Um, and it, So uh, learning uh, what you should be logging, what you should be keeping, and some of those uh, tips and tricks there we will uh, cover here when we're back after the bottom of the hour break. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year Internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by Nick Hollis and Jacob Stauffer of Coherent Cyber. And uh, before the bottom of the hour break, uh, we talked through threat intelligence and cyber forensics a little bit, uh, covered a number of very interesting topics. If you missed that and want to catch the full episode, you can uh, go to our website, www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday of this upcoming week. Uh, You can also uh, subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or our YouTube channel. So uh, I'd like to thank you guys both again for uh, joining us. We had some really interesting discussion before the hour, and it kind of led us into uh, what we can uh, dive in and talk about next. So as you're out there doing a a cyber forensics investigation, and we had talked about, I'd asked before the break, uh, how often do you have all the records you need to really do an investigation? And and, then Jake's. Basically,
2: never. He didn't quite say never, but the look on his face, which you can't see on the radio, was never. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're an enterprise uh, organization like the Air Force, like a government agency that has uh, requirements that they have to have all these logs for X amount of years and whatnot, then then yes, absolutely, you're going to see that. But most small, medium businesses and even some enterprises, they don't have it. Yeah, so if you're, you're going through, and,
0: and uh, we have an IT security person out there listening right now, and they're like, man, I guess I really need to get to doing some better log management. Going through from a, an order of importance uh, on logs, so you've got these edge logs, so you've got these intrusion detection devices, firewalls, and routers out at the edge. Um, how, what are you seeing from uh, people keeping on logs out there at the edge, and, and how long really should they be keeping those, those edge device logs for?
2: Um, I'm probably going to say uh, if you have the storage capabilities, at least two years. Because um, um, like we discussed earlier in the, in the show, that on average, um, a customer, if they are or if they, a, a person is actually uh, compromised, they're going to be compromised for at least six months, if not uh, more. So two years gives you enough evidence to go back and, and actually figure out um, what happened, how it happened, how they got in, and um, um, and then you can eventually give some of that information off to law enforcement if it's required and uh, they can take on the investigation and find out who did it
0: so when you say two years you're talking about two years of of down to the session level detail not two years of roll-ups and 90 days of session level detail yeah correct yes yeah uh so this is one like where you've been trying to run your log management strategy to consolidate and optimize and things and uh, really keeping that session level detail is the important piece or Mm -hmm. Um, Many of the folks out there on your networking equipment, um, there's the concept of sampling instead of actually logging everything. So you'll have just a a sample of your sessions, which uh, provides an incomplete trail. Uh, You may have evidence of the attack in there. You may not. So if you're running sampling uh, on your devices, um, it can cause holes and gaps and problems in there, even if you're keeping those records for two years. But if you're running a a 10% sample rate, there's only a 1 in 10 chance that we're going to find the session that has the compromise in it correct um and going through is is this logging so i think it's not feasible to log everything from every device and uh, i was uh chatting uh with uh, nick for a little bit uh while we were on break there at the bottom of the hour uh, about this idea of the zones in a network perimeters how you ingress and egress out of each of these different areas Uh, it sounds like um Again, the super sophisticated folks may have it documented pretty well, but most of the folks don't necessarily know even all the ingress and egress on a network um, and the zones of the networks inside of their buildings or campuses.
2: Well, I mean, first and foremost, what they need to do, a lot of these organizations that uh, that are trying to secure their networks, is that first and foremost, look at what your uh, critical assets are. Um, figure out what what's important to, uh, to log and then start logging that information, and then then look at your zones. Um, uh, really, what's the the highest vector of attack? Where's uh, the the majority of the individuals that, um, uh, uh, like, let's say, for instance, wireless access points and uh, and and those individuals, um, they're probably going to be using their own devices um, on those uh, systems. So you may have a, a lot more threats on that network than a corporate network where it's just nothing but what you put on there and and what they interact with. So,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, some, yeah, concept of a, a server network and an application network versus an endpoint network. Correct. Yeah, and segmenting those out. It's a good idea, people. So as you work through, so logging on the critical assets at the, the endpoint and then working your way out from there until you've got some idea of all of the uh, devices that would be able to talk directly to those critical assets and start there.
2: Yeah, exactly. So when you look at uh, so look at the perimeter first and foremost, what's the information you want to get out of there? Uh, you want to get um, what's going in, what's going out, um, uh, and you don't want just metadata. You want, like you said, the session uh, the session information as far as that's concerned. Um, you also want um, uh, the various logs from those systems. Like let's say, for instance, if there's a kernel error or if there's any uh, any type of internal error, uh, error not just the network log piece to it. Uh, you want to get that information as well. Um, and then start slowly coming out to the servers, um, get the, the session information on there. Uh, so there's a program that Microsoft has called Sysmon uh, that you can run, you can install. Now, I will say this, though, that, that if you do run Sysmon on your, your system, you're going to be getting a lot of logs. Uh, uh, you're looking at about 5,000 uh, entries within a minute. Uh, so you've got to tune some of that stuff down. Um, once you get that information, um, then you can start looking at uh, at the endpoints. Now, the endpoints, uh, there are technologies out there, EDR solutions that will um, allow you to pull that log, uh, those logs, that information, uh, do some analysis on there. Uh, but really, what you need to do is you need to centralize all that, um, either with Splunk, with uh, Elk Stack, or, or anything else to that fact.
0: Yeah. And this is one that I find interesting is so in the physical side of the security, um, if you have a big office building, you have security cameras on it and the you're keeping that video for some period of time, 30, 60, 90 days. Maybe you're keeping it longer, but you're definitely keeping it long enough to know like in a physical break-in, if something gets stolen, it's much more obvious than on a digital break-in. And everyone spends a lot of money on these video systems. They spend a lot of money on people paying them to watch the screens for those video systems. But they're not doing the same thing on the, the digital side of their networks. Huh? Nick, do you have any idea, like the disconnect of this is you have conversations with executives. Why does the physical risk seem to get more attention than these, the digital risk side?
1: I think it's just history I think people are just you know hadn't really not wrapped their heads around the idea of of what's going on here in terms of how much information's out there and just how vulnerable it is. Um I was I think I'm correct in saying the the British um, government came out a few weeks ago and said that uh, cyber cybercrime has now surpassed in dollars physical crime in Britain. So that puts it all in perspective and I think ultimately CEOs, boards, um, uh, institutional investors, as we talked about earlier, the, they're going to start insisting that people start looking at the threat. And as I said, I, I don't think people really understand just how much money is actually being exfiltrated out of the system. Um, but it's it's showing up in costs, it's showing up in balance sheets, it's showing up on television. Uh, and the biggest challenge, I think, is typically the... One, there's not enough cybersecurity professionals being trained. Uh, two, they typically roll up under the IT department, and there's an unhealthy sort of uh, there's a tension between um, information security, and uh, and IT because the IT guys are in the in the availability business, uh, the and the information security people are in the slowing down the velocity of. Of the availability of information to people who shouldn't have their hands on it, so that tension um, and is 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 palpable in some organizations. And if the individuals that are coming in on the cybersecurity side haven't got the experience or the tenure or the gravitas in the organization that the IT director might have, they're going to lose that battle every time. So that needs to change. I think you need to um, there needs to be a much closer working relationship between the cybersecurity and the IT people. You know, today we see the secure operations center, the SOCs and the NOCs, the network operations centers, and some organization. There's two distinct organizations and two distinct um, chains of command. That's That needs to change. The The day-to-day availability of information and the security of that information needs to be exactly the same priority, and it's not. And that's, one, I think, one of the root causes at the moment.
0: Yeah, one of the uh, ways I explain some of this the push and pull on the IT uh, versus the IT security side to folks is that um, many people are, are familiar with salespeople out there selling and in, in, uh, in an enterprise contract. They drop the big contract in front of you, and then usually the, the lawyers kind of get involved to work on the markup and the language in that contract. And IT without IT security is like an enterprise salesperson without a legal team behind them. They're just making all sorts of changes. That salesperson just wants to close the deal. They don't care about all those red lines. The IT person just wants to deliver a new app on time and on budget, and the security stuff is just things that slow the process down. It's making me do all this rework. It's making me think about things I didn't want to have to think about or things I didn't want to have to talk to my customer about. Um, And it's, it's one where no CEO would turn an enterprise salesperson loose and say, Just go ahead. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want on the contract. It's fine. Yeah, just close the deal. But the CEOs are are turning IT operations teams and IT application development teams loose um, and effectively telling them that same thing all the time is just go ahead and go get the app up, get us into the market, get get that information out in the hands of our people as quickly as you can without the thought of what are the risks um, with launching that new application exposing information.
1: Well, that's a, that's a whole other subject in terms of the code that's being written today. You know, you've got uh, the Denim Group here in town who are two specialists in that business. They're looking at, you know, building secure code. And so many of these IoT devices that are out there right now, they don't have any secure code on them. They're just thrown on out there to be as available as possible, as cheaply as possible. And they are, they're the next major threat.
0: Yeah, there's a, a gray hat um, hacking organization out there. I don't know if you guys have seen this one. Looking from the look on Jacob's face, he probably has. So they are uh, written some malware that's getting out into these Internet of Things devices. And if they don't have security on them, then it's running code on there that's actually effectively melting or shorting the devices out. So they're do- getting in and, and using the coprocessor and the CPU on there until it and overheats it the thing mm-hmm. and burns it up. Uh, to just yeah,
2: or, yeah. or overriding the file system, yeah. I yeah. think they call it brickware or some, some yeah, type. yeah, it, yeah. Really interesting.
0: So yeah, it's, it, and I'm going to call them a gray hat because like they, you you as a consumer or a business have, have purchased some device and this hacker is getting in and they're not doing anything malicious other than eliminating that device from functioning. Um, well, so,
1: and I think in their mind they feel they're actually doing the world a favor by turning that thing off. Yeah. So.
0: Well, and I mean, looking at the big denial of service attack, maybe they are doing the world a favor
2: and and i guess the biggest problem with iot devices is that there's no real standards out there right now i mean everybody's just getting some cheap little uh, chip they're getting uh, something that uh, gives them everything whether it's bluetooth access whether it's network access whether it's it's got general purpose io on it and whatnot and then they're throwing a, a really crappy version of linux they're not hardening it whatsoever they're not uh, uh, putting together policies where um Uh, That software gets updated, uh, firmware gets updated uh, automatically, and then these devices end up on Shodan, and somebody starts searching. You have some high school kids start searching around, pops these devices, and now they've got their own little botnet.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and if if the botnet is an HD camera that, that device is designed to stream lots of data and yep. and send lots of big packets very quickly. As uh, we were talking through as the IT and IT security, as you you look at the the SMB and enterprise, the SMBs don't even have an IT security team um, these days. So. As a, a small or medium business out there, you may have an IT director. You most likely don't have an IT security director. Uh, you, you may have a, an IT security person on the team of that IT director if you're a medium-sized business. Any recommendations uh, in that medium-sized business world or the small business world of like what should they be doing and thinking about uh, to, to try to set themselves up for success
1: I think one of the key things is really um, is have a modern operating system um, and making sure that you know you're configuring your servers uh, with safety in mind I mean they're not just opening everything up to make it easy to deal with so you know uh, say Windows 10 uh, 2012 2016 server there's a lot of security built into these into these products um, password management, Password management is another incredibly important thing that you need to be doing as a small uh, small business, or a small to medium, even large businesses. I mean to say some of the compromises that we find, everybody has, this, you know, basically the, the the login is admin and the, the numbers are one, two, three, four, five. You think uh, all across the service and then you own the organization. It happens more often than you imagine. So, so a simple password policy, some training of your employees. Basically instilling some idea that you know, doing silly things and opening attachments and bringing USBs into the organization is a really bad idea. Um, some form of uh, a decent antivirus, obviously a firewall. Um, from there, um, obviously we talked about logging being important in case you are popped, and then you need to come uh, come backwards. Um, I think. For a small organization, I think that's that, that sort of covers the waterfront. Obviously, if they're small, you know, what, what do they have? Now, if they have very valuable things, you have, you know, security is like anything else. If you have something very, very valuable, you spend a lot of money insuring it. Yeah. Um, if you don't have a lot that's valuable, that's not to say that you would do silly things. Um, but there are just just those basic fundamentals should get you get to there. Jake, what have I left to?
2: really don't tried to reinvent the wheel when it comes to your own security Um, one of the things that we have seen in the past is uh, is some companies that will uh, put together their own solution they don't use industry standards um, and whatnot and then when something really does happen when something just completely catastrophically fails somebody gets into the network and they have uh, terabytes of data exfiltrated Um, you've got individuals that come through and try to take a look at their security and just like what's going on spend the money um, put together a, a little bit of time and, and get a consultant to come out and actually sit down and, and, um, and discuss uh, some of the touch points. And you don't necessarily have to have a, a huge laundry list of things that you need to do. Have a few uh, priorities, um, that, that some things that keep you up at night, and then just give that to the security professional and say, look, this is what keeps us up at night. Um, take a look at it. Come up with a solution and, um, and let us know what you come up with. And, um, and a lot of times those individuals, if they're competent, uh, they will come up with something um, uh, that will enhance the security uh, of their network. But uh, uh, to piggyback on on Nick's stuff, yeah, modern operating system, uh, antivirus, um, so some sort of um, solution, we, we talk a lot about a defense in depth. So uh, so start layering uh, all your defenses. Um, and then uh, don't be afraid to ask the community don't be afraid to to get a consultant to come out uh, do a free um, uh, discussion uh, with them and uh, see where the holes are and see where they can plug them
0: yeah it's like uh, just on your your own healthcare side of things it's um, much more affordable to go uh, see the doctor on a regular basis get a health checkup get things caught before they're a problem get the to where you're doing the right things than it is to end up in an emergency room because you, you've had something that you've ignored for years of, like, ah, I really should get that looked at, but I haven't. Uh, I think you see folks do this on
2: their technology and security side of things more than on their own individual health. Well, and the other thing is is that uh, me as a consumer, I have the ability to, to, to go to, like, home advisor and find uh, guys that can work on my house. I have the ability to look on the Internet and find a whole bunch of doctors that work for us uh, um, but we don't really have anything like that as far as a security consultant or security professionals that we can centrally go to and say, this is what I'm looking for. And, uh, and, and so,
0: there's a new business out there for someone yeah. to start cyberadvisor.com. Yeah, exactly. So if that domain's That's not registered now, someone should go grab it. And uh, if you want to get in the business, uh, yeah, Home Advisor, uh, Angie's List, Cyber Advisor. Cyber Advisor. Uh, there we go.
1: It's interesting you say that because we get calls all the time, people coming over the transom going, I don't know what I'm doing. Come help me. You know, it's it's that, and then or I've I've been clipped. You know, what do I yeah. do? Come help me. Come bail me out. I, or my insurance company wants me to do this by tomorrow. So, it's it's all very reactive, and and that's all the way through the SMB chain. The big enterprises are getting, are, you know, they understand. They understand the value of what's going on, and they have the budgets to be able to deal with it.
0: Yeah, I mean they're in, uh, they're still running into problems, but they're getting pretty good at containing the problems. So now when enterprises are getting hacked, it's not sixty million credit cards anymore. It's just the credit cards at one store location, or um, well, they and,
1: haven't been in there for three years.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or it's just one employee's laptop that got ransomware, not something that spreads across even a whole office campus location and infects thousands of machines.
1: So you bring up an interesting point in terms of, you know, we talked a lot about logging. Um, The other key thing, actually, I should have said as part of any organization is backups. Um, If you have a machine that gets compromised and somebody locks it all up, well, if you've got six, seven, eight, nine, twelve months of backup, so that's fine. You just back it up and reload the server, and you can tell those people to go along, you know, on their merry way. So
2: yeah, and that's, and that's one of the things that we run into a lot is that some of the clients that come to us and say, "Hey, we actually got ransomware on it." We look at them just like we can't do anything. All your stuff's encrypted. I'll, either you go and pay the Bitcoin, and that was the other thing that was that just completely blew my mind. A lot of companies right now, what they're doing is instead of actually investing in backups or investing in uh, um, and some sort of solution to find this stuff, what do they do? They're just stockpiling Bitcoin just in case that this stuff is happening. Yeah. And it, it just completely blows my mind. It's,
0: it's tripled the price of Bitcoin over the last 18 months mm-hmm. um, because there are yeah a number of companies out there now holding it. And this is another interesting one, um, Nick, that, that we talked a little bit about SEC disclosure stuff um, I wonder if they sit bitcoins under cash and cash equivalents right now, um, and if, if they should have to <laughs> call out in a line in their quarterly filings how many dollars worth of bitcoin they're holding.
1: Yeah. A ransomware bitcoin. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah.
0: this is. I'm, I'm holding these bitcoins because I'm not actually going to do any security controls to stop ransomware. I'm just going to just pay the ransoms. Paying the ransoms. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, until eventually they it be, just becomes it happens every day, and then ultimately you've got to do something permanent about it.
0: But, yeah. Uh, any any K and R insurance brokers out there uh, listening? Are you offering a, a ransom insurance yet for the the ransomware piece? Uh, if not, maybe there's an insurance opportunity for you.
1: Yeah, we've spoken to some insurance companies, and they've they've mentioned that uh, pricing of this stuff is very very difficult. Yeah. Very very difficult.
0: Oh, yeah, it's it's hard to assess the risk. You can you can look at the value of the digital assets sort of. So like these digital assets, it's harder to quantify value. And then we, because it's not as easy as looking at an office building and zip code and what's the crime statistics for that office building and that zip code and that type of building with those types of cameras, that's all very well quantified and actuary can plug all that stuff in and they can go here's the risk that your office is going to get broken into and here's what an insurance policy is going to cost to protect the gold bars you've got sitting inside. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, and it's a different mindset. Financial risk management is very different than than, uh, uh, cyber security uh, risk uh, management. And I mean, NIST and a whole bunch of other organizations actually have publications for uh, risk management, figuring out that type of stuff, but you just don't have financial guys that are, are smart on that. And that's typically why they bring in some sort of security professional or, or whatnot.
0: As uh, folks go through here into uh, 2017, we're, we're headed into summer. Um, this used to be back in the days that summers where we would get a lot more mischief on the Internet because um, the college kids were all out on break and they would goof around and, and hack more things. Uh, are we seeing those kind of trends still these days, from from your perspective, or is it uh, just now the level of attack and noise is it's much more professional than it is, um, kids?
2: Well, you're you're gonna have that, that mischief anyway. So I mean, you're gonna have the smash and grabs, you're gonna have the script kiddies, and you're gonna have the the, the nation state actors that, that know what they're doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you leave when you leave kids to their devices, so one of the things that I uh, I do is I mentor uh, middle school, and high school kids. Um, when you leave them to their devices, they're gonna get themselves into trouble. They're gonna get into grandma's basement and start hacking the planet, and then all of a sudden, FBI starts knocking down their door, and that—that's when it becomes interesting. So,
1: but I, I think your your point was correct as far as the the noise. It, it's lost in the noise now. There is so much hacking going on, as I said. You know. There you are in Britain and I'm sure in this country the, the physical amount the amount of cyber dollars are, are, are approaching the amount of physical dollars lost to theft in, the, in so you're not uh, you you're not you're not seeing the bumps because there's just so much happening every day out
0: there. yeah any uh, new attack vectors that uh, you guys have seen that uh, it's still harder to investigate or um, things for folks to start thinking about?
2: The things that I'm worried about is those things that we haven't seen yet. So that's those are the. I mean, the, the Mirai botnets and, and all the new stuff that's coming out. Uh, the good news is is that you've got really good cyber guys that are out there uh, pulling this stuff apart. Um, but um, I'm looking. I'm waiting for the next uh, next big thing. So
0: yeah, I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times. I'm kind of worried because the the hackers are. Just like a product development organization, and they haven't had a major product release in about five years. Ransomware was their last major mm-hmm. new product release. And-
2: well, I mean, it was cr- it was crimeware beforehand. It was these uh, these exploit kits that were out there, and then you very rarely see that anymore, uh, because ransomware took over. And then now, uh, what what's the next big thing? Um, brick, yeah. Brickware and, and and some. I mean, the, I really do think that the uh, IoT landscape has really opened us up to uh, uh, more exploit uh, more. Um, places where things can get exploited and uh, uh, beachheads can be um, uh, exploited or yeah.
0: set up. So if folks wanted to continue having conversations with you or have you come take a look at their network, where do
2: they go to do that? www.coherentcyber.com so.
0: Well I'd like to thank you both for uh, joining us this week. It was an uh, interesting and uh, in-depth conversation in some areas. We covered a lot of topics. Uh, you would like to learn more about some of the specific areas, we have uh, an archive of past episodes going into drop tests and physical security and uh, diving deep into that uh, cyber hunting with uh, Chris Garrett from InfoSight. So you can listen to that on iTunes, uh, YouTube, or Pocket Casts.